This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Well hey, good morning Anchor Church. Matt Sparks here, lead pastor. So glad that you've chosen to join us this morning for Church Online or if you're watching from one of our church at home house churches across the city. We are stoked that you are joining us this morning and we are actually really missing gathering. I know some of you guys absolutely love your Sunday church at home experience uh, and I do as well. I'm loving my GC, but uh, I'm also really missing our Sunday gatherings. I really miss um, being able to preach a sermon and then get down and have a conversation with someone and pray for someone and all of the things that we're missing at church at home. Uh, But it seems like this is an extended season for us in... uh, in this expression of church at least, um, and we would love you to keep praying for our nation and our world, um, even this week as we've seen the devastation that's happened in Beirut. Um, we'd love you to keep praying. There's, um, there's a lot of heaviness in our world at the moment, and we believe in a good God who walks alongside us in the midst of our brokenness. And so we'd love you to be praying uh, for all of the things that are happening across our world, and to perhaps after the message today, your GC can spend some time praying for some of those things. I just want to give us a couple of quick um, book recommendations ahead of this sermon today. A number of books that I found really personally helpful, and the best one that I devoured over the last two weeks is a book called *The War of Loves* by David Bennett. David is a uh, a Christian apologist, although he wouldn't have always identified that way. He was a, a gay activist, studied here in Sydney, went to school in Sydney, Sydney, born and bred, became a Christian in a gay pub in Darlinghurst on Oxford Street and um, has had a radical transformation in his life. His book, A War of Loves, is probably the best book I've read. Uh, it's his personal personal story and journey and it's profoundly moving uh, and I'm really, really thankful to him. Um, the other book I'd recommend is Rosaria Butterfield's The Gospel Comes with a House Key. I think it paints a beautiful picture of the type of church that we need to be that embodies genuine family. In particular, um, her story is uh, very similar to David's. She was a, an academic atheist uh, lesbian and uh, met Jesus through hospitality Uh, And her family embodies that in such a beautiful way. And so I'd really recommend those books. The website Living Out um, and Wesley Hill's book Washed and Waiting. A number of great resources that are available for you that I'd uh, recommend that you would pick up and read. Because this sermon, I can only scratch the surface on this topic. So I'm going to pray for us and we're going to dive right into God's word for us. So please join me as I pray. Father, I thank you that your word is living and active. I thank you that it's true. I thank you that every word that comes from your mouth is good. And Father, I pray now that we would sit humbly under your word. I pray that you would help me preach what is a very sensitive topic today. And I ask that everyone would be blessed. And I pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen. Well, we've been walking through a series called Deconstructing God. And uh, what we've wanted to do is help you deal with and wrestle with doubt Um, Doubt is a normal part of the Christian experience. No one has a perfect faith. No one walks through life without any doubts at all. But um, doubt is often met with opposition, strangely, in the church. And sometimes the church hasn't cultivated a safe place for people to ask really deep questions. So this series, Deconstructing God, is here to help you wrestle with doubt. And we wanted to provide you with 
good answers to some of the questions that make our faith shaky, that, that seem to rock the foundation of, a fa- of our faith and cause us to deconstruct. Questions like, how come there's violence in the Old Testament? Like, does God condone that? Or how can a good God send people to hell? Or, or um, if God is in control of everything, why does he allow people to suffer? You know, doubts, um, whether even though they're common for every single person who calls himself a Christian, doubt will either do one of two things in our life um, and for our faith. Doubt can be a good thing if we confront our doubts and take those thoughts, make them captive to Christ. If we wrestle with the truths and seek to find answers in the context of community, our doubts and our deconstruction can actually strengthen our faith. But if doubts are left to fester, they can actually weaken our faith and cause us to walk away from Jesus altogether. Well, today we're going to be addressing the topic of sexuality. And the question I want to ask this morning is, how can we say that we have a good news message when our um, Christian sex ethic is received and perceived by our world as harmful and damaging? And more specifically, how can we say that we have good news for the gay person, the same-sex attracted person, or someone from the LGBT community, when we say that sexual intimacy is reserved for an exclusive covenantal marriage between a man and a woman. That seems, in a 21st century city like Sydney, entirely exclusive, if not damaging. Now, I think this is um, a really significant issue for many people. Um, This issue has been a line in the sand issue, has it not? It's been uh, at the very center of the culture wars that we've seen across our globe. This was at the center of a a, a large culture war here in our country over the same-sex marriage recently. Um, And this is a very real reason why many people begin to deconstruct their faith, because we are faced with the reality of facing people that we know or love who say to us, I'm gay. What does your God say about me? I'm same-sex attracted. What hope does your Christian message offer me? Friends, and family members, and colleagues, and neighbors who put this question to us. And um, and it's a real question. Um, Family members whose children, parents whose children come to them and say, Mom, Dad, I'm gay. Uh, And then begin to deconstruct their faith and say, well, we no longer believe the things that we believed for all of these years. And we're often faced with this, um, this false dichotomy of saying, well, if I truly love someone, then I need to abandon the biblical sex ethic. And we've seen our really famous cases of this happening. Um, you know, the, the, the world famous preacher and theologian and author Josh Harris last year deconstructed his faith and walked through a deconversion process. He was uh, most famous for writing a book, uh, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, which was um, helpful and unhelpful in many respects. Many people were actually hurt by the book and he came out apologizing over the book and That process sent him on a journey of deconstruction. He came out in the middle of last year saying that he no longer held to historic Christian faith and walked away from Jesus. And this was the issue that caused him to deconstruct and walk away. So needless to say, this is a significant and pertinent issue for for our lives, for our church, for our culture, this moment that we find ourselves in. So let me offer a couple of caveats right at the top of this message. The first is that today I'm going to speak more partially to a Christian audience. I recognize that everyone watching this morning may not identify as a follower of Jesus, a Christian. Uh, And so there's a number of assumptions I'm going to make this morning that um, things like we believe that the Bible is true, we believe that God is real, 
Uh, if I was having this type of a conversation, a message with a predominantly skeptic audience, I would have a very different message prepared. But today's message will be more pastoral in tone and speaking a bit more directly to the church and specifically to Christians who wrestle with same-sex attraction. A second uh, caveat is um, this is not a cultural war issue. This is actually about people, people that we love, we care about, we know. Um, and I know this because of the, the conversations I've had with people in our church. There are people in our church who are wrestling with an unwanted same-sex attraction. Some of you too scared to tell anyone about your uh, secret orientation for fear of what it might mean um, for your friendships, for your relationships. Uh, this isn't an issue that is simply out there. This is an issue involving people that we love and care. And I think the final caveat says the church hasn't done a great job of this in the past. And I think actually, um, even here at Anchor, I think we've got room to grow in this space. I think we uh, can create the type of church that allows deep platonic friendship and family to exist, that allows people who are walking the costly obedience of gay celibacy to thrive and to flourish and not to walk in loneliness. The church has a historic bad reputation. Um, we need to own that. We need to learn from our past and we need to grow and move forward with this. But all that to say, um, this, is a, this is just one of those topics. Um, and so I would love to, um, I mean, this is so difficult. Normally after preaching a sermon like this, I'd be there available after church to talk to people and do dialogue and Q&A. And that's just not possible. But if you do have questions, uh, I want to make myself available during the next week. Um, you can email me, matt at anchorchurch.com.au or DM me on Instagram at Matt Sparks is my handle. And I would love to continue the conversation. You know, there are so many movies um, that involve the twin topics of identity and intimacy. It seems like such a significant um, theme that runs through all of the movies. I think of, um, you know, a movie like Toy Story, where you get to that scene where Woody is considering abandoning his lifelong childhood um, friend in Andy and his little posse that he goes around with to join uh, an exclusive group of collective toys and be in a box, on a mantelpiece, in a museum together for the rest of his life. And he has this moment of crisis, and it's a crisis of identity and intimacy. Because in that moment, he's faced with a choice. Should, should I join this collector's edition, or should I be with my friends? Who am I? Am I a toy that belongs to Andy? Or am I this collectible item that belongs in a museum? And he has this moment of realization. He looks at the bottom of his foot and he sees Andy written on the bottom of his foot. He realizes his identity and he longs for the intimacy that he has with Buzz and all his little posse and companions. Now that theme runs through so many of our love songs, our TV shows, our movies, and so much of our cultural narrative is around identity and around intimacy. And so what I want to do today is I want to offer us some reasons why our message, the Christian message, is good news to the gay person who is wrestling with their sexual identity, their sexual orientation, and their preference. And the two reasons are this. The first is that Christianity offers us something better than marriage and sex. And that's true for whatever orientation, gay, straight, bi, whatever, Christianity offers us something better than marriage and sex. And the second reason this is good news is because it's an invitation to deep, intimate, rich family and relationship. But I think I need to first speak to an assumption about identity that we experience in our culture. And that is every single one of us has a core 
truth about ourselves. We all kind of operate from this deep sense of some truth that we believe that is central to our who we are. And we call that our identity. It's um it's a life narrative, a life script that we live by that shapes our view of ourselves and our view of the world. And in a 21st century secular Western city like Sydney, there are three predominant things that shape our identity. The first is what we do, our work, our career, our our output, our achievements. The second is what we have, our possessions, um, the relationships in our life, uh, perhaps our houses, our cars, our material wealth. And the third is our desires. And connected very deeply to that is our sexuality. Now, we have made sexuality even more so than what we do and what we have core to our identity and our being. Janelle Williams Paris, a professor of anthropology and a Christian, says this in her book, The End of Sexual Identity. She says, Sexual identity is a Western 19th century formulation of what it means to be human. It's grounded in a belief that the direction of one's sexual desire is identity constituting, earning each individual a label, gay, lesbian, straight, bi, trans, pan, whatever and with it a corresponding social role. In our world, sexual identity is core. It is the truest thing about a person. And our culture has made freedom of expression and self-expression, particularly of the sexual self, the center of our personhood. And so any form of constraint that comes on our personal freedoms, uh, uh, the expression of our sexual self is viewed as damaging other than the constraints of mutual consensual adults. That, that, that is our moral framework. As long as there's mutual consensual adults, everything is permissible. Any other constraint outside of that is viewed as damaging and actually an attack on a, on a person's core identity and personal. Now that's, that's really important for us to understand. Firstly, it's important for us to understand in the church. Because what it means is when we talk about the Christian sex ethic, what is often heard by our culture is an attack and a denial of my personhood, of the thing that is making me me. That's really important to understand for our culture because there is an underlying assumption that what makes a person whole and happy and human is the expression of their sexual identity. Now, what I want to suggest to you this morning is the truest thing about you is actually not your sexual orientation or preference or expression. The truest thing about you is that if you're a follower of Jesus, that you love Jesus, the truest thing about you is that you have a God-given identity as a child of the King. This is what John says in his opening chapter of the Gospel of John. In John chapter 1, verse 12, he says this, but to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. Or again, Paul in Galatians 4 verse 5 to 7 says this, God sent Jesus to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out Abba, Father, now, you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you are his child, God has made you 
his heir. There are some profound and beautiful identity statements in there. And if you are a Christian, a follower of Jesus, this is who you are. You're a son or daughter of the King of Kings, the Lord of the universe. You have been adopted into his family. You are not a slave to your sin. You're not a slave to the the flesh, to this world, to the devil. You have been set free. We are children of grace and we are made co-heirs along with Jesus, standing to inherit the promises of God and the kingdom of God. That is who you are. That is the truest thing about you. So with that in mind, with this framework of understanding that identity is so significant and that our sexuality is not a strong enough identity hook to hang all of who we are on, we need something more than that. I want to say these two things. There are two things that make our, and there's way more than just two things, to be fair. But these are the two things we have time for in this message. The first is that the gospel offers us something that is infinitely better than marriage or sex. Every human desires to be known and to know someone, to be loved and to be loved, to desire and to be desired. We we yearn for it. We yearn for love. We yearn for intimacy. We yearn for relationship. The question is why? Why do we do that? Well, we do that because, um, well, not because we're the random product of um, a freak mutation, But we do that because we have been created in the image of a relational God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who existed for all eternity in the perfect loving dance of the Trinity. So when God creates us in his image, in his likeness, a portrait of his character, we are made like him, relational. It says this in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. We're created relational beings designed to be loved and to love each other. And that meets some of the deepest human needs and desires we have. But to be known and to be loved by God meets the ultimate desire, the ultimate need that we have been created for. You see, deep down, everyone desires to to receive two things, to be fully known, not partially known, but to be fully known and at the same time to be fully loved, to be real and transparent and vulnerable, and to to have someone know the full extent of your mess and your junk and your brokenness, and yet at the same time not to be rejected because of that, to be beheld and to be wanted and to be loved. Now, I think there is a deep fear in each of us that if people truly know us, like if people truly know my heart and truly know my insecurities and truly know me, then they would reject me. And so what we do is we project to the world. We withhold ourselves. And it's part of what causes tension and friction and damage in relationships. But what every single person deeply yearns for is to be fully known and fully loved at the same time. Where do we find that? C.S. Lewis famously says this, If I find in myself desires with which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. You see, we need a love that can sustain the weight of our desires, that is infinite, that is unconditional. The the type of love that Paul reminds us of in Ephesians 3.16, that when he talks about the love of God, he said it is 
high and it is wide, it is deep and it is long and we can experience it, but it is too great to understand. That is the type of love that we yearn for, love that is immeasurable, a love that is, that is infinite. And another human being who has been created in the image of God as glorious as another human being is, will never ultimately provide the type of satisfying knowing and loving that we are looking for. And when we make any relationship, a friendship, a sexual relationship, a marriage, when we take any relationship and make that ultimate, we are demanding things from that relationship that it can never fully offer us. And we crush it. We turn it into an idol and we demand things from it it will never really give. See, the reality is we've been created to know God. We've been created to love God and be loved by God. And that's why marriage and sex are not a part of the new creation because they point to a deeper reality. That is the marriage, the union of Jesus and the church, of the bride and the bridegroom. And so when we encounter this type of love, the love of God, a love that is so deep and so satisfying and so fulfilling, it radically fills us. That's why People will die for their faith. That's why people will make radical sacrifices for following Jesus. And so my question for you this morning is, have you encountered the radical, earth-shatteringly, soul-filling love of God through Jesus as the Holy Spirit has poured that out into your hearts? Because without that experience, none of this makes sense. No level of self-denial, no level of taking up your daily cross, no level of singleness and celibacy is an ever satisfying answer when we don't understand the love of God. You see, I think it's um, a little, I picked up this great illustration from Rebecca McLaughlin's great little book, Confronting Christianity, and I would recommend her chapter on, um, she asks 12 brilliant questions of the church, and she has a chapter in there that says, isn't Christianity homophobic? And I got this great little illustration from her book. She said, what we demand in a human, illustri- in a human relationship uh, and what we're actually looking for and finding God is the difference between a hug emoji that someone sends us on your phone and the genuine real-life embrace of a lover. And man, are we missing those at the moment with social distancing and isolation. It means that God's not trying to rip us off. What the Christian message is actually offering us, what the good news of the gospel is offering us, is the best type of love and relationship that you could possibly have, the one that you were designed for. So the, the good news of the gospel offers us something better than sex and marriage. And we get a beautiful picture of this in Isaiah 56, these wonderful kingdom promises that God gives for the eunuchs. Now, a eunuch was a royal officer, a royal attendant who was castrated and emasculated for the purpose of service. And eunuchs often oversaw the king's women's quarters because they couldn't sleep with the women. The king trusted them. Uh, they were often um, castrated unwillingly. Some chose to you know, uh, castrate themselves. But under the old covenant law, they were excluded from worship. They were deemed unclean and unable to enter um, the temple courts to worship 
God. And Isaiah has this beautiful prophecy of their restoration under the new covenant. This is what it says in Isaiah 56, verse 3. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. Let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. Here are a category of people who did not fit the binary categories of the day, whom were social outcasts standing outside of the people of God, unable to fully worship. And God makes these staggering promises. This is a spoken into a culture that deeply valued family and children. Uh, the reason that the name is important is because the name carried your inheritance. It carried your um, your all of who you were was passed on to your ancestors in your remembrance. And so, in the you know in the ancient Near East, family and children, and particularly sons, were worshipped. And here is God giving a promise to someone who is unable to have children, saying, I have something better for you, a memorial in the, in, in the new heaven and the new earth, a memorial, a name that is better than sons and daughters that will not be rubbed out, that will not be forgotten. Now, what is possibly better than sons and daughters? What is possibly better than marriage and sex? Well, it's the promises of the kingdom of God. It is a, an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you. It is the pleasure and unending glory and joy at the Father's right hand for all eternity. And so what's good about the Christian message is that what is on offer is something infinitely better than sex and marriage. Those things are simply signposts to a deeper reality, the, the, the union and the marriage of Jesus and his church, his bride. The second um, reason that it's good news is because the gospel is an invitation to deep, rich, intimate family and friendship. If there's um, a, a good objection uh, to the Christian sex ethic, it's that for someone who's wrestling with an unwanted same-sex attraction or someone who identifies as gay, to live as a Christian, according to the Bible, feels like a sentence to lifelong loneliness. Uh, you know, I will never experience sexual intimacy. If this is what God wants for me, is he saying, I need to be lonely for the rest of my life. Now, I would acknowledge that that is a significant cross to carry, that there is absolutely a cost to following Jesus. But I also want to remind you of the promises that Jesus gives for every single person who follows him. In Mark chapter 10, verse 29, as the disciples come to Jesus, questioning whether or not it's worth following him, giving up everything to follow him, Jesus says this, I assure you that everyone who has given up house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or property for my sake and for the good news, will receive now 
in return, a hundred times as many houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and property, along with persecution. And in the world to come, that person will have eternal life. The, the promise of Jesus is that you are not ripping yourself off. And part of the solution to that is that the church ought to be the brothers, sisters, mothers, the family of God, the, the things that we have given up, we receive back with bountiful blessing as we're a part of God's beautiful, messy mosaic and community called the church. The church is a family. That's who we are. The, the metaphors that are used in the New Testament to describe the church are a family, a household, and a body. And both of those metaphors that are used describe a deep sense of connectedness, of intimacy, and of relationship. There is a deep sense of connectedness between my arm and my torso. It's connected. It's dependent. We need each other. There's a deep sense of connectedness and intimacy and friendship and, um, and love and joy within family. And those things ought to be present in the church. And so an invitation to follow Jesus ought never be an invitation to loneliness. That was never on the list of things that Jesus said, take up your cross daily and follow me into loneliness. No, in fact, it's an invitation to beautiful, rich, deep family. Sadly, though, the church has often idolized marriage and the nuclear family and minimized singleness. Somehow friendship has become the low watermark of intimacy and joy and love and uh, marriage is the high tide mark. When in scripture, what we actually see is deep, rich, intimate friendship, platonic friendship that is not sexualized intimacy. We see that in the life of Jesus. John, as he refers to himself in the third person in his gospels and letters, calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved. He is the one who stands with Jesus at the cross as he dies. There is this deep, intimate friendship and um, and love that occurs there. John, the disciple that Jesus loved. Or you think of the story of David and Jonathan in the Old Testament, which many have unhelpfully sexualized. But that is a, a rich, intimate, loving bond and friendship between two men that is not sexual, that is entirely platonic, uh, that gives us, the scriptures give us examples of what it looks like to have deep, genuine friendships that are entirely intimate. So I think as a church, we need to stop worshipping marriage. We need to start valuing singleness. Jesus was single and was the most whole uh, human that ever existed on the face of this planet. And look, I think we've done a, a wonderful job of this over the years, but we still have room to grow. Uh, I still remember hearing the story of a couple at our church who invited their gay celibate friend to be a godfather to their son. Now, that might seem like such a simple thing, but it was such a beautiful recognition that for this guy, he wasn't sentenced to a life of having no children. Now, here in this family, he could be a godfather to this son, a spiritual father who invested in and loved him. And I actually asked those parents, I said, why did you pick this person to be a godfather to your son? And they said that they loved 
the beautiful model and example of this man who walked in costly obedience to Jesus. They felt that was a beautiful model to their son for someone that he could look up to as a model and example in the faith to follow in the footsteps of. That is what it looks like to be to create the type of Christian community that allows people who are single, who are wrestling with an unwanted same-sex attraction, who are walking the costly obedience of being celibate and gay, to feel deeply loved and connected and part of family. And we need to be creative about how we can do that more. You know, I believe that the celibate gay Christian is the most prophetic witness in the church today. Same-sex attracted Christians who are stewarding their sexuality and walking in the costly obedience uh, to Jesus are the most potent and powerful example of the sufficiency of Jesus, that he is enough. And so I want to say, and there, you know, there are um, many people in our church, some who have uh, been, felt free to share their story and others who haven't, who are pursuing costly obedience to Jesus. And I want to say, you guys are some of my spiritual heroes. I, I love you guys. I look up to you. I'm so inspired by your faith. You know, uh, a couple of years ago, I was in London for a conference, uh, a global conference of um, church leaders from across the globe and across denominations. And there were a bunch of Catholic priests there from all over Australia. I remember having a conversation with a couple of other uh, Protestant pastors and a, and a Catholic priest. Uh, and the topic turned to the conversation of the vows that Catholic priests make. And you may not be aware, but Catholic priests make three vows. The vow of poverty, a vow of obedience, and a vow of chastity. The vow of poverty doesn't mean you literally have nothing. But they vow to live out of a common purse. Uh, they live communally. They live in a house that's provided by the church. They share a car. They share meals. They share. Uh, they live simply. The second vow, the vow of obedience, is a vow of obedience to their superior in the church, their bishop, to follow the call of the Lord wherever they're called to serve in his church. And the third, the third vow is a vow of chastity. Now, I, I mean, I was so intrigued by listening to this guy's personal story. So I asked him, why, why did you make those vows? Like, you know, we believe that we are free to be married as Protestant pastors. Why did you make those vows? And his answer absolutely floored me. He said, in a world that is obsessed with money, power, and sex, the most countercultural example I can live is to take my vows of poverty of obedience and of chastity. And in that moment, I think I understood for the first time the power and significance of the vows that they willingly choose to make. Now I recognize that there are many people who unwillingly need to take those vows. And so I want to say to you, just address a couple of um, categories of people as I wrap up this morning. If you're a Christian, if you're wrestling with doubt over this issue, I want to say that it's a false dichotomy that our world offers us that you can't love someone if you don't affirm everything about their beliefs and their practices. That's a false dichotomy. I think we can hold on to our, uh, the views of the Bible and love people. And I want to say that our message is not bad news. For our friends and for our family, this is a good news message we have. We're a good news people and we have the best news to offer 
every single person, irrespective of their brokenness, irrespective of their ethnicity, irrespective of their sexual preference. If you're a Christian and you're wrestling with your sexuality, perhaps a, an unwanted same-sex attraction, then I want to say this. We need you. You actually make us a better church. I want to say that Jesus is enough. And I want to say that being single and celibate is possible. By the power of the Holy Spirit, it is possible. I know it seems impossible, but there are so many fathers of the faith who have been in, in Christian ministry, sisters of the faith who have been in Christian ministry, who have remained single throughout their whole lives. It is possible by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I also want to say, as the church and as your pastors, we, we want to see you, we want to hear your stories, and we want to walk alongside you and continue to point you to Jesus. And finally, if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian this morning and you're watching this, I want, to, I want you to know that God loves you, irrespective of where you're at, irrespective of your story, and irrespective of how far gone you feel you are from God. I want you to, you to know this morning that God loves you, and we are willing to stand beside you until you realize that for yourself. Church, I realize this is a massive and significant issue. Um, we could probably preach 20 sermons on it and only scratch the surface. There is so much more to say, but we do want to say that we love you guys. Uh, we want to continue to be the type of church that values every single person and points every single person to the love of God and the sufficiency of Jesus. So bless you guys. Hope you have a great week. Let me pray for us as we close. Father God, we thank you that you have loved us with a lavish, unconditional, unending love. You see us. You see all of us. You know us even better than we know ourselves. And despite our brokenness, God, we even find it hard to love ourselves. And yet you love us unconditionally. You have loved us so much that you sent your only son to take our place. God, I pray for every single person watching this morning that you would fill their hearts with your love by the power of your spirit. And Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are walking the costly obedience of being gay and celibate. I pray that you would strengthen them by your Holy Spirit and help us to be the type of church that creates beautiful, rich, deep, intimate friendship and family. We need you. Strengthen us by your spirit. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. And all of God's people said, Amen.